Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus 1, verses 8 through 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, and they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt, with, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, and he gave them families, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. grateful for the reading of God's word, Exodus 1, 8 through 22, quite a few verses there, but powerful read, not necessarily what you'd think of as an inspirational text, probably on a Sunday morning coming out. We're grateful for the Lord's preserving his word. We began last week our study of Exodus. I talked about Genesis kind of reaching back and being the foundation of what we're talking about and if you miss that, it's worth a listen, not because it's necessarily any good, but just because there's some information there that I think might be helpful to connect the dots to see just how far back it reaches. We reached all the way back to Genesis 1 with the Lord's command of being fruitful and multiplying. We reached back to Genesis 3 quite a few times, and we'll touch that today with that promise of the seed of a woman and the seed of a serpent. The theme of our time in Exodus is... Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. Now today, we'll test that for application for the preacher. Make no mistake. But I think you'll see the, when the opposition begins to pile onto God's people, there's a clear cry for a Savior. But make no mistake, this morning we go from bad to worse to the unimaginable. Now, I know you may have had a tough week, but I doubt you can rightly identify with the people of Israel in these moments. 
I mentioned to you that persecution that I was talking about just this week, the CEO David Curry of Open Doors shared this, that Nigeria is the real epicenter that we're seeing for a lot of this, particularly northern Nigeria, where you have two very radical groups, uh, Boko Haram and uh, you have Al-Qaeda and ISIS there as well. They are persecuting Christian villages and trying to push Christians out of the north and into the southern regions and parts of Nigeria. But with COVID relief that's happened, we've added an extra filter of difficulty, his words, particularly because of some of the food and hygiene resources. Listen, church, these things would typically go to impoverished villages because of what's going on with COVID. But these goods are being distributed by Shiite Islamic governors with Sharia law in place, with statutes that are basically telling the Christian, this aid was paid for by Islamic taxes, and you are a Christian, you are an infidel, we're not giving you any food or hygiene. Organizations like Open Doors and others are rallying support, and actually this is kind of weird to say, but they're not challenged because they don't have enough money there's just the real logistical challenge of sneaking food and hygiene in before it rots in a port held up by customs and other challenges that are going on. This is a very real thing. This seems hard to believe how somebody could be so cruel and so ruthless, and yet today you're going to see that multiplied in our text and reminded that uh, the world has seen Hitler, Stalin, other persecutors of mass genocide, but Pharaoh rakes right up there with them. He has a sinister plan that he will execute against the people of God that we'll see unfold. Take your Bibles. If you want to grab a pew Bible in front of you, they're there for that reason. Um, let's talk a little bit about what we see. The first verses that we'll throw up on the screen for you, Exodus 1, 8 through 10. Let's just go back and and see this again. We read this last week. We ended on verse 8. Today we start on it. And I've said before, when I grow up, I want to have a voice like Jeremy to read scripture with. I love that great baritone timber in his voice. Now there arose, I can't do it, I'm done. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. This new king, and, and he didn't know anything about Joseph. And he said to the people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them. They're too many, they're too mighty. How can a new king not know anything about Israel or Joseph? I find that hard to believe. Uh, this is a side note, it's not in my notes. I better hurry, I don't have a lot of time. Pray for me, Pastor D, I don't want to chase this too far. But in Judges 2.10, there's a powerful, haunting uh, scripture that says, and there arose a generation after him. This is when Joshua and all the elders had died that did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. Well, that's not what's going on here. This new king that comes in, can I give you a little bit of what's happening here? You may recall that Israel is in the land of Goshen. Now, this northeastern part of the Nile uh, Delta becomes the womb for the nation of Israel. And I'm not sure how well it shows up on the screen, but that's a little green patch up there. Can you see it? I should have picked another color besides green, Grace Covenant, to throw up on the screen. I recognize that in this moment. Thank you for your mercy. But um, if you look at it, it's pretty strategically placed if you were going to be a military force to impact some severe damage on Egypt. You could hit them for multiple things, although that was never on Israel's mind. But this new king rises up. 
About 60 years after the death of Joseph, a revolution takes place, we learn from our history books, by which the old dynasty was overthrown and Upper and Lower Egypt were united into one kingdom. Now, assuming this former king reigned in Thebes, it's probable that he would know nothing about the Hebrews. And as foreigners and shepherds, which we recall from our uh, Advent time last year, that it, Egyptians hated shepherds. Uh, that was not a uh, thing that they enjoyed at all. They didn't like that. Uh, they were agriculturalists and, and livestock destroy agriculture. So, so they, did not, they did not like shepherds. But as foreigners and shepherds, they would have regarded them with dislike and scorn. Now, we enjoy something as a nation that we think is normal. It's not. The peaceful transition of power that we get to see on a regular basis in our American history as one president leaves and another president takes office in our nation's capital is not typical of other world systems. And make no mistake, this was not a peaceful transfer of power. This was a regime change. History tells us that the new king came after the Hyksos revolution and oppression. And in the wave of Egyptian nationalism and the hatred of Semites, including the Israelites, they came in and treated them with suspicion. They're threatened by Israel because of two things. There's too many of them. And if they align with an enemy, it could be devastating for us. So what's the solution? Pharaoh needs to check their power and their numbers strategically. I mean, from a business perspective, it makes sense, right? I'm not giving Pharaoh a pass. I'm just saying, based on what he believes, he's like, we've got to put this in check. So here's what he does. Unwittingly, though, when he begins to implement his sinister plan, watch this. He unwittingly becomes an obstacle to the covenant promises of God. You see, the Bible says that God, speaking to Abraham in Genesis chapter number 12, said this. You go from your country and your kindred and to your father's house, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Remember, and I will make you a great nation. Remember what he says? I will bless you. I'll bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. Pharaoh now steps in the way. Phase one of Pharaoh's sinister plan begins with this. Let's look at the first note. I want you to write this in the margin of your Bibles. Slavery. Write down the word slavery. Exodus 1, 11 through 12. Right beside of verses 11 and 12. This is phase one of Pharaoh's plan. Slavery. Hey, Caroline, let's swap to the pulpit mic and I'll turn this one off since it's glitching, okay? She's the best. You got me? One, two, three, four, five. We're good. Thank you so much, Caroline. Sorry about that. The Bible says, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. This word burdens here is svalot. I'd have everybody say that, but that's ridiculous. We won't say it after today. But anyway, this word means it's heavy loads, almost unbearable loads. It's compulsory Labor. My children may think that I impose this on them when I give them chores. That's not what we're talking about. This is compulsory. It doesn't matter what you think. You have no opinion. You will do the work that we say. They are oppressed. So forced labor was enforced on them and established throughout the Delta area that the children of Israel were required to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses to start with. 
Now, they weren't hired or they weren't asked to be servants or, hey, we've got an idea. They were forced with taskmasters into slavery. As if slavery isn't demeaning enough, this is not a positive work environment. If I've got any HR folk in the room, your skin will crawl. The word afflict here is the same word for oppressed in verse 12. It was an oppressive, afflicting, humiliating labor environment. Now some of you are like, yeah, but they should have worked my job for a week. Listen, this is not the way that God intended work. I have to remind you of something that we forget in this lottery-driven world of we long for paradise where we can sit in the lazy boy and hold the remote, right? And that's kind of the American dream for us. But I have to remind you that God ordained work before the curse. God instituted work. Think back on Adam and Eve. Even in paradise, they were not expected to lounge around. They were to fill the earth and to subdue it. Hugh Welchel of the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics says it this way. God came to Adam and Eve on the sixth day of creation and said, here's your job description. Let me tell you what you're going to do. Two things I want from you. Fill the earth with my image bearers, and I want you to subdue the earth. Now, the word, therefore, subdue means this. Go make the earth an incredible place for human beings to flourish. And that's what our work is all about. And so we see that in the garden. Work is not meaningless. And as we see it playing out, it was true in the garden. Our work today isn't meaningless. And our work in eternity, the Bible says we will rule and reign. That's not sit and, you know, pop bonbons for all eternity with Christ. It's what God has given us. It's a tool that God has given us to bring flourishing to his creation. But like all things that God made and said was good, man has corrupted it for his selfish desires. This is not God-honoring work that the Egyptians are forcing on the Israelites. But watch this. Regardless of the assignment, the Israelites as a people had learned from their heritage to work as unto the Lord. Those towers were built magnificently. Now, Egypt and Pharaoh took credit for all that, <laughs> as people often do. I know you've had a tough job or two in your life. I recognize that your current job may not be your passion or your ideal dream job. And I'll concede that many of us in here with any diversity or years of work experience have had at least one extremely difficult boss. Yeah? <laughs> if we're honest, some of us may have been that boss in our younger days, right? We're not going to get an amen on that one, I don't anticipate, but... I'll readily say that early on in my management days. I wouldn't have stayed working for me. <laughs> Pharaoh thought he had it made. Thought he had this expendable workforce and thought, I'll crush them with work. You didn't work for Pharaoh. But they flourished in the midst of it. Verse 12 says, they were more, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. See the first instrument, this sinister plan of the enemy. Slavery. I'm going to enslave them. So then he takes it up a notch. He ramps it up with ruthless persecution. The second point I want you to write down, if you're writing notes in the margins of your Bibles, it's also okay to do that in the pew Bibles, we'll let you, is savagery. It's a word we don't use much today. Savagery. But the Bible tells us that even the last days, we'll know by the savage times that we see around us. 
savagery. Verses 13 through 14, they ruthlessly ramp up this persecution. They make them work as slaves, making their lives bitter with hard service. You see it? Ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is described as cruel and unusually harsh conditions. Egyptians abused the Israelites as slave labor for construction projects, for agricultural projects, and then take all the credit for all of its creation as if it was their own genius and labor that caused it to be. The injustice that we read about here bears some resemblance to our modern day. People of power today who are corrupt continue to abuse and prey on the weak for their own devilish reasons. Some report upwards of 30 million slaves. I mentioned that when we gathered and started this morning. Right now being sold. Human trafficking is now the second most uh, largest, rather the second largest organized crime in the world. What motivates it? Greed, sexual perversion. By the way, those are the chief exports of the entertainment industry. Despite the existence of injustice like this, though, we believe that God remains a God of justice, standing on the side of the oppressed. God's people should also aim to glorify him by imitating his character. Despite the incredible cruelty against God's people here, there's also a powerful result of their persecution. Watch this now. This is going to be tough to hear. By keeping the Israelites enslaved, the new Pharaoh actually helped preserve their identity as a close-knit community. It's not a pass on what he did. Spurgeon writes about it this way. In all probability, if they had been left to themselves, they would have melted and been absorbed into Egyptian culture. Think about this. They were content already to be in Egypt. They were quite willing to be Egyptianized. They began to adopt the superstitions and the idolatries and the iniquities of Egypt. Yet all the while, God was resolved to bring them out of that evil connection. They must be a separated people. They could not be Egyptians, nor yet permanently live like Egyptians. For Jehovah had chosen them for himself, and he meant to make an abiding difference between Israel and Egypt. Watch this, church. Hear me carefully. God is not cheaply concerned with your comfort and your ease in this world and in this age. As persecution ramps up for the church around the globe and as it becomes increasingly clear that society is getting through with the church. You know, back just 50 years ago when you moved into town, you joined the church and you told people about it. It was good for business. Those days are long gone. Now you join the church because you really feel a call and connection to the church and you don't tell anybody so you don't lose your job if you've got a Bible-preaching, gospel-focused church. I'm telling you, these are different days. These are savage times, but God is interested in his people staying a distinct people. God has called us to be set apart, sanctified. God is working in us and through us to mark us as his people, the sheep of his pastor. It is not God's will for us to be so careful now. Don't hate me. Americanized in our ideology that we forget we are citizens of another kingdom. And we belong to a kingdom whose builder and maker is God. 
we are Christians first. Disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ first. We are called to be separate and not adopt the superstitions and the idolatries and the iniquities of any culture. In his book, The God Who Makes Himself Known, Ross Blackburn translates verses 13 through 14 this way. He says, And the Egyptians forced the sons of Israel to serve with violence. This is not normal slavery. This is slavery, which is bad enough. This is savagery. Deuteronomy gives us a glimpse into how tough it was. It was described in Deuteronomy 4.20 as like you were living in an iron-smelting furnace. This evil, brutal, savage form of slavery escalates, and then Pharaoh has a revelation. You know what he says? I don't actually need all of them to make this come to pass, which brings us to phase three of his sinister plan of opposition. Watch this. State-sponsored genocide. Slaughter. The Bible says, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife of the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you'll kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. Now, can I have a Sunday school moment with you? When I was young and I heard this verse, I thought, well, why not? I mean, let the boys live. So you got this strong man to do all the labor in the building you need to build. Remember, though, he was concerned about a military force, an uprising. I know some women that can crossfit better than some dudes. Let's just acknowledge that in the room. I know some in this room that can outrun me and smoke me. I get that. But I'm just saying I struggled with that as a little boy. I was trying to figure out why I do that. Ah, oh, now I see the threat. Got it? The word birth stool is actually difficult to translate. Uh, there are three camps and three meaningful words of it. For what it's worth for you Bible study nerds, some say it means a stone, meaning they would literally give birth on a stone. You may have had a not-so-great room at the hospital where you delivered or delivered at home, but doubt you had your baby on a rock, okay? Uh, some say it means a basin, and this is where they would wash the baby off, but also implying that it would be easy to drown the baby uh, in this moment. Isn't that something? Horrible to imagine. Another option, uh, and I'll just keep it at this level for um, the mature folks in the room, say that it could also represent the stones, which is how you would tell the sex of the baby. Uh, so that was the three thinking there of what it meant to be on the birth stool. But whatever it meant, the plan was clear that you were to kill the boys. He did this to slow the growth of the Israelites, but also to make them fear him. When Pharaoh issued this death warrant, I want you to hear me something, church. Hear me say something clearly. He became publicly an enemy of life. I mean, there's no other way around it. He was trying to squelch God's creation. God had said, be fruitful and multiply. We've already covered that. We touched that last week. I've touched it already today. But Pharaoh's trying to say, no, no, not that way, my way. I've got a better plan. I am, watch this, an enemy of life. He also became, this may seem abstract, but he became an enemy of Christ by opposing God's special plan for sending a savior. From the very day that Adam and Eve first sinned, God promised he was going to solve that problem. It was planned before creation. But in Genesis 3.15, we touched it last week, he said, I will send the seed of a woman to crush the head of the serpent. 
God's people trusted in that promise, waiting in hope for the coming of the Christ. Whether he knew it or not, Pharaoh was acting like the seed of a serpent, trying to stand in the way of what God was doing to prevent the Savior from becoming a man. In case I haven't made this clear as your pastor and on behalf of the elders and on behalf of the Grace Covenant Church family, let me say unequivocally, anyone who can advocate for abortion and continually participate in what can only be described as a wholesale slaughter and infanticide of millions of babies for the sake of their own agenda is an enemy of life and an enemy of Christ. But God had a remedy. God raised up some folks who would risk their lives to stand in the gap here for the voiceless and the vulnerable. We won't read all the texts. You've already read it about the midwives, but these midwives would go, and it says right there in the first verse, 17, they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Take a moment, read those words to yourself again. They feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Oh, God help us here. William Grinnell said, a 17th century Puritan said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. These midwives are an example of how we can act with courage when we trust in the promise of God and reverently fear the God of the promise. The voiceless and the vulnerable are still crying out for an advocate today. For somebody to stand in the gap for them and men and women and boys and girls from all over this nation and the world are doing just that. Loving life and loving Jesus and crying out for babies' lives to be spared. And not because it's a political issue, but because it is a biblical conviction. We are for life and we are for Jesus. These women are critical linchpins to Bethlehem. Without the midwives, you have no Moses. You've got no Exodus. You've got no David. You've got no Mary. You've got no Jesus. Something else clever in the text I want you to notice. Do you remember that their, their names were used here? It's so important. They were mentioned by name in the text. Did you see if the midwives were mentioned by name? Go back to the text there, Shipra and Pua. I want you, it's not normal for us to circle people's names that only appear one time in the Bible, but I want you to do it. If I, wait, I had it right here. Let me give you a pastor moment. Pull it out, click it, and circle Shipra and Pua. Why? Here's something of note. Pharaoh's name is not mentioned, and Pharaoh's love for their names to be mentioned. They plastered it all over all their buildings. Pharaohs love to see their names all over all their cities and their accomplishments, but the only names worth mentioning here are those who feared the Lord and loved life. I wonder, when the pages of history are turned on Grace Covenant Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, the heart of South Bend, will our names be worth mentioning? Because we love the Lord and it showed, and we love life and it showed. This reminds us that the church is obligated to obey God before men. If the government decrees something that is anti-Bible, we stand with God's word in the full assurance that God will take care of us. Maybe even knowing that persecution may come, it's okay. Christ is worth it.
Even though a remnant stood up, the savagery and slaughter continued. The final verse of our text this morning. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Maybe you're like me, and you wonder just how barbaric a society has to be to have allowed this to happen. Tony Meredith gives us two insights as to why he chose the Nile. First, it was convenient. And second, they believed the Nile was a god. Now that seems weird to us, right? It's probably sitting in the pews here. Praise God, 2020, right? We're like, they thought the river was a god? Yes, they did. They thought the Nile was a god. And this shifted the blame. The Egyptians could view the Nile as a giver and taker of life. And they might have thought they were doing the will of God. Such a travesty, such an act of, I, I just don't know how to describe it, just barbaric, murderous act, sinful in the face of God act. How could they do it? But listen, too often in our lives, we let convenience lead us away from the will of God. And though we likely don't consider a river a God, we have often engaged in what can only be described as acts of worship to lesser gods, when we literally sacrifice our family's time and resources for sports and politics and entertainment and career. Joseph Exel said, a bad king makes a wicked people. A bad king makes a wicked people. He will influence the weak with his splendor. He will terrify the timid with his power. He will gain the servile with his flattery. He will gain the simple with his cunning. He will sometimes gain the good by his deception. In the history books, we learn that this Pharaoh appears in archaeological records with a snake symbol on his crown. Genesis 3.15. Pharaoh lived out his serpent role by killing the boys. Egypt was an enemy of God. And God must deliver Israel so that they may worship him as he promised. This story is bigger than just Egypt and Israel. It's bigger than just Pharaoh and Moses hasn't showed up yet. But that this is a cosmic spiritual battle. Slavery. Savagery. Slaughter. Those are devices of Satan himself that he still uses. Our reflection verse when we open this morning from John 10. Let me give you the context. We'll throw it on the screen. John 10, 7 through 11. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are as thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in. The thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. Without even too much of a reach of understanding, this enemy that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, think about it. He wants to enslave us to sin. Many of you were in bondage, well, all of you before Christ were in bondage to sin. Whether you readily acknowledge that or not, we were slaves. And if that wasn't enough, he would insert savagery into our lives and sabotage us with some with addictions to this or to that, as if being slaves to sin weren't enough. He made it worse. He's the father of lies. 
He is only interested in your demise, not your success. There is no deal with the devil that ends in success. But his ultimate plan is to destroy everything that God calls good. John Newton writes in his hymn, and I close with this. His hymn is entitled, We Were Pharaoh's Bondmen. It's a really old hymn. Listen to these words. Beneath the tyrant Satan's yoke, our souls were long oppressed. Till grace our galing fetters broke and gave the weary rest. Jesus, in that important hour, his mighty arm made known. He ransomed us by price and power. He claimed us for his own. Now free from bondage, sin, and death, we walk in wisdom's ways and wish to spend our every breath in wonder, love, Ere long we hope with him to dwell in yonder world above. And now we only live to tell the riches of his love. Our society may convince you that Christianity is a matter of event attendance or a matter of preference in this pluralistic and relativistic age. Oh, I, I identify as a Christian instead of a this or a that. Or that's the box that I check. As if through some mental ascent you can pass from death into life. But Christ has paid the ransom for your soul, as it were, with his own precious blood to free you from the slavery, the savagery, and the slaughter that the enemy has planned for your life. Are you walking in wisdom's ways? Are you wishing to spend your every breath in wonder, love, and praise? Or are you desperate for redemption? You can be redeemed today. If the Lord is dealing with you in that and you're ready to do the old timers would say to do business with God. I don't know how I'm going to say it. I'll be available throughout the rest of the service. There's elders, there's deacons here. Find somebody in the row and say, pray for me. I am desperate for redemption. Let's pray as the musicians come. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the fact that even though Moses hasn't showed up yet, for the stage is set, it is ripe. We see the need for we see the need for a savior. We see the need for somebody to stand in the gap on behalf of these people. I pray this morning, if there's someone here who doesn't yet know you as savior and Lord, that they too would see that need. That the enemy's plan for their life is the same as Pharaoh's was. It's a sinister plan of destruction and oppression. Father, help us to see that you've come to give us life. Yes, we are, as some would say, slaves to the master, but wow. What a glorious reward it is to adjoin ourselves to you. And now, Lord, we stand to worship you in spirit and truth. And let the church say amen. Would you stand with me together and let's sing and worship the Lord.